and Sue was taking a selfie. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a Snapchat. <laughs> You're with the youths. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our wrap of the week's political news. Donald Trump now looks like the official GOP nominee, according to a new delegate count. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about Hillary Clinton's emails, why they won't go away. And we'll explain to our younger listeners what Whitewater was and why you're hearing about it now. Of course, we'll round the show out with listener mail and what we can't let go this week. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover the campaign. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. Before we get started, I want to ask you guys to do us a quick favor. If you like this show, take a second to rate it on iTunes. That helps other folks find us, which helps us keep doing the show. Okay? All right. So, Donald Trump has the magic number as of this afternoon. I was coming out of my building this morning, and there was a big news flash that Donald Trump had won the nomination. And, and I said, what happened? I thought I had to wait a couple of more weeks. Does this actually change anything? We've known for a few weeks now that this is going to happen, right? Why right. did it happen today? So what happened today was the Associated Press, who uh, most news organizations, including NPR, follow their guidance on on delegate official totals, uh, called around to unpledged delegates. And uh, they found enough unpledged delegates who said, yes, I will be voting for Donald Trump on the first ballot to get Donald Trump over that majority total, which was 1,237. That's the number we said more than any other number on the podcast this year. Uh, We thought that Trump would not be able to get there until that last day of primaries, June 7th, which includes California. But now, because more and more unpledged delegates are saying, yeah, he's the only guy left, he's going to be the nominee, I'm going to vote for him, he's already there. And what it changes, too, is if it affects the media a lot in one way, because if you've listened to us and you read stories, we have these tortured ways of describing Donald Trump. Because we can't say that he is it. We are not allowed to call him the presumptive nominee because that's actually a title you get when you get that magic number of 1237 or above. Now that he has it, you're going to be hearing him called the presumptive nominee a lot more. He will not just be called the nominee until after he formally gets the nomination in Cleveland this July. Presumptive Uh, nominee. I don't know what's more awkward, that or president-elect, just in terms of, like, clunky long titles. Yeah, Over, and yeah. words that real people don't use. Yeah, exactly. So, in other news, there was another Trump rally in Albuquerque, New Mexico, this week with some major scuffles with protesters, some shattered glass. Um, he also said at that rally in New Mexico that the governor of New Mexico isn't doing the job. Since 2000, the number of people on food stamps in New Mexico has tripled. We have to get your governor to get going. She's got to do a better job, okay? Your governor has got to do a better job. She's not doing the job. Even though she is the highest-ranking Hispanic Republican in the country and the chairman of the GOP Governors Association, um, all of this is stuff that probably won't hurt Trump, at least not in the short term. But does this mean that he's just not going to pivot and, and not become a candidate for the general? It sure sounds like it. She's not just the highest-ranking Hispanic Republican. She's the only female Latina governor in the United States. And she's a woman. She's a Latino. Those are the two groups he really needs. But he gratuitously insulted her. And And it's incredible to me. This is the week that he crossed the threshold. He got the 1237. You'd think he'd be in the mood to be magnanimous, but he's lashing out at anyone who he thinks snubs him. She didn't show up at his rally. She said she was 
really, really busy. She Sounds was like, I have to wash my hair. <laughs> she was also a name that had been rumored to, or thought about as potentially being a vice presidential contender because she's a Latina, because she's a woman, because a lot of people see her as someone that they'd like to see on the ticket. Uh, after this rally in New Mexico and, and those comments, House Speaker Paul Ryan this week, who uh, has still not endorsed Donald Trump, defended Susanna Martinez and says he knows her, he works with her, that she's a great governor and that she has the support of a lot of Republicans in the party. And this comes after a stretch where I think we've all been surprised at how quickly the entire leadership of the Republican Party is coalescing around Donald Trump, with a few notable exceptions like Paul Ryan. But more and more people, including people like Lindsey Graham, who who had uh, some of the most like blunt, concerned, outraged things to say about Donald Trump of anybody. Now we've seen reports that he's quietly telling people, yeah, we should support Donald Trump. Uh, so can we talk about Trump making an appearance on Jimmy Kimmel last night? I want to set this up. In part of their conversation, he was asked about the story from about two weeks ago now uh, about audio of someone claiming to be Trump spokesman John Miller, who had a phone call with the reporter in 1991. Um Lots of media outlets said that was actually Trump posing as John Miller. Trump said, actually, that was not me. We have some audio of it. He, he treated his wife well, and he treated, uh, and he will treat Mama well. And, you know, he's, he's somebody that has a lot of options. And, frankly, uh, you know, he gets called by everybody. He gets called by everybody in the book in terms of women. And, uh, I do. Well, he gets called by a lot of people. Yeah. He gets called by all the women. That is, like, so clearly Donald Trump. But Trump said it wasn't him. But then That's last the first night, time I've heard that audio. Oh, it's, it's man, it's something. But Kimmel asked Trump about this last night. To me, that didn't sound like my voice. It didn't, yeah, well, nobody sounds like themselves when they hear Maybe. themselves. You go, oh, Maybe. that's me. But to me, it sounded just like you. Really? Is that yeah. Right? 30 years? 30 years? And if it was you, I think it was a very funny thing to do, to call a guy and... Take them through the ringer. Well, you like know, that. over the years, I've used alias. And when I'm in real estate, and especially when I was out in Brooklyn with my father, and I'd want to buy something, and honestly, nobody knew who Trump was at that time. Nobody right. knew me, so it wasn't so much so important. But I would never want to use my name because you had to pay more money for the land. If you're trying to buy land, you use different names. What name? So he claims that he used aliases as a business tactic. But we have another Trump answer to a question that's kind of a non-answer. Well, he, at the time, the People magazine reporter said that he called her two weeks later to say that was a prank that went awry. That We don't have a tape of that. But it sounded like he was fessing up. Look, what he does is highly entertaining. It's always outrageous. But at some point, does the Hillary Clinton campaign find a way to turn all of these things into a... Uh, crushing case for why he's not to be trusted with the United States nuclear codes. But he seems like Teflon. So there's this other weird moment in the interview when Kimmel points out to Trump that he's previously said that Clinton would be a great president. So he calls him on it. And then Kimmel asks a pretty pointed question of Trump and his flip flop on whether he likes Hillary. She's wonderful. The husband, Everybody's wonderful. And that's the way it is. And including contributions. They ask me for contributions. I give contributions. So you were full of when you said it. If you hear after Kimmel asked Trump says a little bit. In yeah. the crowd applause. Well, isn't this like one of the things you hear from Trump supporters is that they feel like he's honest. But that's actually he actually just said I'm a little right, bit BS. Right, but he was honest about being BSing, <laughs> and that there's something about his candor and his that style of that brash style of his that the people that like Trump that is like. A, a characteristic of him that they love about him. The people who like Trump like that. They're very loyal. The big question is, 
Can Hillary Clinton tell all those people who haven't decided yet that this is not the right temperament or character to be president? Right. Like, if you like Trump, nothing's going to change your mind. The question is, if your mind isn't made up yet, can you can yeah. she win that argument? But I think going back to the Miller thing, um, this is a good example of how Trump has been able to game the system so well uh, in, in that, you know, news outlets who report on this have to put high up in the story the fact that Donald Trump says that this is not him. Donald Trump denies X. Donald Trump denies Y. But we sit here and listen to that tape, and it so clearly sounds like Donald Trump. And this is something he's done over and over again that that previous politicians, certainly most nominees, just didn't do, which is, you know, I never supported the Iraq war. Well, here's a tape of you saying you supported the Iraq war. I never supported the Iraq war. But just the way that he's able to kind of buck the typical system of denying stories by just saying things that, that can be very clearly contradicted, but you still have his point of view, the spin that he wants to put on the story up up top. Yeah. He is singularly the hardest politician to fact check oh, yeah. that I have ever encountered. Yeah. You know, the other thing that happened on Jimmy Kimmel last night, uh, Bernie Sanders is going to be on Kimmel tonight. And apparently Bernie Sanders sent a question for Donald Trump through Jimmy Kimmel, which Kimmel read to Trump. OK, so he, here's the question from Bernie. He asked Hillary Clinton backed out of an Hillary Clinton backed out of an agreement to debate me in California before the June 7th primary. Right. Are you prepared to debate the major issues facing our largest state and the country before the California primary? Yes or no? He wants to know if you will debate. Yes, him. I am. How much is he going to pay me? Uh, you, you, would, you would do it for a price. What would yeah, the because price if be? I debated him, we would have such high ratings. And I think I should give. Take that money and give it to some worthy charity. Okay. So if it was done for charity. Okay. So. Okay. Can, I'm sorry. I'll, I have a point to make. I want you to make. I want us to make all the points because none, nothing about what just happened there makes any sense to me. Is it going to happen? I would be shocked if it happened. Partly because, well, you know, Bernie Sanders is not necessarily looking for Democratic Party approval on this, but I would imagine that forces in the Democratic Party would be very against him debating Donald Trump. Because it would also create a possibility where you would have Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump together Hillary attacking Clinton. Hillary Clinton. I mean, what what other outcome could a debate like that? Well, my only thought is that Bernie is thinking that he would demonstrate in person the thing he's been saying for months, which is, I do better against Donald Trump than Hillary. There are some polls that show that. So he wants to be mano a mano with him. I think it's a total setup and a trap for Sanders because... He'd be on the stage agreeing with Donald Trump's criticisms of Hillary Clinton, and that would cause a huge furor and hugely yeah. risky for Bernie Sanders yes, if he hugely did poorly risky. in that yes. debate. It would be it would just right be if he calls him gutting. a crazy communist. Yeah, yeah. But do you think I don't think Trump would go after Sanders? I think he would just like we said use the both of them to kind of take shots sure, at Hillary. Sure, just Clinton like the whole you time. said about Hillary. I agree. She's right. corrupt, yeah. which would just infuriate every corner of the Including Democratic Party, including many Sanders supporters. In the same interview, though, Trump also said that he could probably beat Sanders more easily than he could beat Clinton. Who do you like more, Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton? Well, I actually think that Bernie would be easier to beat, even though he shows up a little bit better in the polls. And I may be wrong, but what I do like about Bernie is that when he loses, because the system is rigged against him totally, just like it was rigged against me. I mean, the so, system is rigged. 
And I just don't understand it. But of isn't this. that a little bit to me? That's like the dark arts of politics, where you endorse the you you suggest you support the one that would be easier to beat. I mean, there's another thing this week is uh, American Crossroads, which is a Republican super PAC headed up by Karl Rove endorsed Debbie Wasserman Schultz, <laughs> yeah. a Democrat from Florida in her primary. I mean, it's sort of that you elevate the opponent yeah. you want to be running against. Also, sidebar: How is Karl Rove still around? You know, he's still in it. Yeah. Um, can we also just back up for a second to, to something we should also draw attention to is that it, what made me think of it was Donald Trump saying, you know, pay me, we'll give the money to charity. Another There's story, questions over charity. This yes. Week, right? But as some as we go back to fact checking Donald Trump, if you remember earlier this year when he didn't get involved in that Fox debate and he had his own rally, his sort of counter programming uh, in veterans. Iowa for the veterans and the Washington Post investigated this at the time, he said he was going to give a million dollars of his own money to veterans. And the Washington Post followed up on that and followed up on that. And it turned out he never did it. Like and no it, money or no, some he money? He never wrote the check. And the Washington Post, a- after like doggedly going after him about this, he finally cut the check. So, oh, when, so he did Yes, he did now. But, okay. you know, only after multiple huh. uh, inquiries and scrutiny from the media did he write that check. So the promise to send the money to charity if he debates Bernie would probably need some follow up on that. Yeah. And that whole charity thing gave an opening to the Clinton campaign and other Democrats who have been hammering the tax issue saying, you know how it'd be easy to know how much money you gave to charity, Donald Trump? If you'd release your tax returns. You know, was that going to happen, though? No. He has been <laughs> adamant about that. He's given about 10 different excuses. First one, I'm being audited. Um, the second one, there's nothing interesting in there. And the third one, which I think is the best and most definitive, it's none of your business. Let's talk more about those tax returns. Usually, nominees for both parties release them. Every time. Every time. Um, There are several theories as to why he won't do it. One of them, which interests me, is that the tax returns might prove that he isn't as wealthy as he says he is. Or that he doesn't pay any taxes at all. We know that the only time he ever did release his tax returns when he was having an application for a casino license in um, New Jersey, he showed that he paid zero for a year or two. And then there's the thing that Scott just raised. Maybe he doesn't give any money to charity. How in the world could it be possible for a man with millions of dollars at least to pay no taxes? Well... It's not that hard. Actually. <laughs> uh, there's lots of ways that wealthy people don't have to pay their taxes. Uh, it dep- Part of it is charitable giving, which is one of the questions is, can you write off those taxes? Uh, part of it is his complicated, his business filings, and a lot of times it, what you call an effective tax rate uh, and how much they're paying that way. And the different deductions that people get to use, different ways they get to claim it. I mean, if you have a, if you have a good accountant, you can. there's many workarounds the system. Uh, and I think, you know, the average middle class tax rate is around 28%. So I often think that sometimes if you're paying almost no taxes or low taxes, it's obviously a very easy to make a political issue that you're not paying as much as particularly as someone who has said that he thinks wealthier people, including himself, should maybe pay a little bit more in taxes. You know, the corollary to that is that there was an old quote unearthed where Donald Trump said that he's looking forward to the real estate crash because he could make a lot of money. And the Clinton campaign jumped on this en masse, thinking they'd found a really good line of attack. And Trump had a very ready answer for this, which I'm assuming would apply to his low tax rate if he has one, which is, I'm a businessman. This is what I do. I try to pay as little as taxes as possible. He's actually said that in the past. And in terms of the housing crash, I always look for opportunities to make money. That's what a businessman does. I wasn't a politician back then. And the... Yeah. I was going to say the argument that a lot of that you hear a lot from people that pay lower effective tax rates is that they use that money and their job creators. That is the argument for lower taxes. And I think Donald Trump has made that argument that I the money I make creates jobs. All right. Taking a quick break. We'll be back to talk about the Democrats. 
Support for NPR Politics and the following message comes from Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo understands that you work hard to get the most out of life. From starting a business to saving for retirement, there are a lot of things you want to accomplish. Working together, Wells Fargo will take the time to understand what you're trying to achieve to help you reach your financial goals. That way you can care for the people and things that matter most. Learn more at wellsfargo.com together. Wells Fargo. Together we'll go far. All right, we are back for the Democrats this week. One big story was Hillary Clinton's emails. We all can recall this. I think the secretary is right. And that is that the American people are sick and tired of hearing about your damn emails. Thank you. Me too. Me too. <laughs> but investigators are not tired of her emails. Um, that was uttered at a Dem debate in October. Um, why are we still hearing about Clinton's emails right now catch us up on this whole thing because the more that i read about it the more confused i get scott so the basic thing that, that that's been an ongoing campaign issue for for more than a year now is that when she was secretary of state instead of using a government email address hillary clinton used a private email address and what's more is that she housed it on a private server in that her was, house yes so this has been an ongoing issue dogging the Clinton campaign. It's been a part of the congressional hearings into what happened in Benghazi. It's been part of attacks on the campaign trail. There's an FBI investigation into what happened That's here. That's still going on. That's still going on. But what happened this week was that the State Department's inspector general released a report that had been in the works for, for more than a year. The final report was nearly 80 pages long and it was very critical to Hillary Clinton. It found that she violated the rules of the State Department by using this private email address and private server. It says that she never sought permission to huh. do this. And if she had asked, the State Department would have said no. no. <laughs> uh, but she has said, and the report also says, that previous secretaries of state have used their own personal email addresses, right? That, that's right. That's what the Clinton campaign was responding with this week, saying that, you know, Colin Powell used a private email address. I believe he used an AOL email address really? when he was uh, Secretary of State. That is true. The report does say that and has broad critiques of department-wide practices. But what's also true is that the rules got tighter when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State yeah. compared to previous uh, Secretaries of State. And, and there was one passage of this report that really struck me as something that, that Republicans could, could make hay with, was that at one point, apparently, uh, open records officials within the State Department raised this concern with Clinton's top staffer saying, hey, you know, this, this makes it harder to comply with freedom of information laws and things like that. And they were told, never bring this up again. There's no doubt that her terrible numbers on trustworthiness and honesty stem in large part from the email controversy. When she left the Secretary of State's job, she had astronomically high like approval 69%, ratings, 69%. Right? And they've been on a pretty steady trajectory down. And the big thing that happened was not just that she became a politician and was running for president, and that probably knocks a certain number of points off your favorability rating right there, but because of the emails and because she's never really been able to explain why she did it. She said she did it for convenience, yet there was an email uh, released in the IG's report where she talks about, I want to make sure the personal emails are protected and are not, not disclosed. We should also say, too, that this is their, these are dual tracks. So what came out this week was the State Department internal review, more about protocols and where protocols followed. The FBI is investigating whether there was any uh, laws broken in this process. We know that people that have been involved in setting up the server and staffers have been interviewed by the FBI. It's likely that Clinton herself will be interviewed by the FBI. The timing on that is not certain. Um, and then it raises the question of 
you know, was there a criminal act here, which is the question we still don't know the answer to. And if she gets charged in the midst of an election, that's should she be the nominee? Changer. What happens? That's a, oh, well, man. we should say um, that uh, our colleague Carrie Johnson's done a lot of reporting on this, and she has reported several times that uh, sources uh, in the Justice Department have told her that as of right now, the information that the investigation has right now, uh, the likelihood of criminal charges against Hillary Clinton herself are very, very unlikely. Yeah. So in other Clinton news, a very old Clinton scandal resurfaced almost out of nowhere this week. Uh, It's called Whitewater. Mara, you covered that. Tell us what happened. Whitewater was a failed land deal that the Clintons were involved in uh, in, before they became came to the White House and it Before was Before they became president. They became president. <laughs> and it was investigated. And this week the Trump campaign wrote an email to the RNC asking for some information on it because they wanted to talk about it. And the Trump aide who wrote the email was named Michael Caputo. But at the RNC, when they responded to his email by mistake the RNC staffer typed in Mark Caputo, who's a reporter from Politico. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> and that's talking about a leak falling in your lap without even having to do anything. That's how we know that the Trump campaign is interested in pursuing Whitewater. But we already knew that they're interested in pursuing all sorts of things from the 90s. Trump himself has raised Vince Foster. He's talked about the sex scandals. No, no, no. Not all so, of our listeners oh, know who okay. Vince Foster is. Oh, Vince Foster was a White House aide who committed suicide back in the 90s. There's a lot of conspiracy theories that he was murdered. Uh, Trump himself said to The Washington Post this week, well, um, I don't want to bring up that she was involved in his murder. That would be unfair. But many investigations, I think five or six at the time, concluded that Foster was a suicide. So there's no evidence for that. Trump didn't provide any, but he did inject it into the media bloodstream again. And, and the Whitewater investigations, did they find wrongdoing on the Clintons? Uh, no, but that <laughs> no. was the billing records. Right. And that was another case where it seemed she was hiding something. All of a sudden, the billing records miraculously appear after she couldn't find them for a while. Um, I don't think the Whitewater rises to the level of a hugely damaging 1990s-era Clinton scandal, but... It was out there this week because the Trump campaign is interested in it. And it kind of became shorthand for everything else because the investigation that was launched to look into this real estate deal looked into what happened with Vince Foster and ultimately, most damagingly for Clinton, pivoted to look at Bill Clinton's affair with Monica Lewinsky and what was said under oath and who was told to say what under oath at what time. And of course, that led to Bill Clinton's impeachment. What's so interesting, too, is that the Vince Foster, his suicide is also one thing that is as we're reliving the 90s and so much of this election is that there was also so many conspiracy theories around the Clintons. And the and the Vince Foster suicide was, I think, probably the apex of that in the 90s was thinking that the accusations that they were somehow involved in his death. And what is so interesting now is that You know, those are accusations that mainstream Republicans have pretty much shied away from, that that it was really more in the conspiracy wing of the party. And what's so interesting about Donald Trump is he is not, you know, distancing himself from those theories. He's embracing them. He's campaigning on them. And if you think about other conspiracy theories, which is, you know, in 2008, when Barack Obama was running for president, the birth certificate, whether he was Muslim or not, his opponent, John McCain, the senator of Arizona, whenever it came up on the campaign trail, he would say, these are not true. He is an American. He was born here. You know, he would take the high road. And Donald Trump, Trump seems very willing to play in that. Not just very willing. Trump was the original big birther. Yeah. He was the birther movement. That's a good point. He led it. But here's the thing that I feel like lets all the conspiracy theory 
talk linger with Hillary Clinton more than with other candidates because it always seems like there's these tidbits of her hiding something. And I think the server gets to that. The private server is indicative of that worst image of Clinton and Bill where they're always trying to hide something. This is what Donald Trump said this week. He said, quote, there's always a mess with Hillary. And that's what is going to be, I think, underpinning a lot of these arguments. They're too corrupt. It's a mess. You don't want to go through this again. A lot of it's self-inflicted. It's like, I think, you know, regular voters will look at the Clintons and say, like, you know, if you have nothing to hide, why do you act like people that have something, something to, to hide? hide? And, you know, there is something to be said about the fact that they have been political targets for the past 30 to 40 years. Yes. So people like that tend to, you know, carry themselves with more privacy and, you know, they take care of your you, you are more aware of the fact that you're a public figure, but they also hurt themselves. sometimes. And it just seems well, like this cycle of continued investigation and digging and then continued paranoia on the side of the Clintons where they just keep private servering their stuff and yeah. it's just well, weird and don't forget the shoe will be on the other foot because this is the argument the Clintons used against Trump on his tax returns mm-hmm. why not release them unless you have something to hide yeah so before we go to break Hillary Clinton could clinch the Democratic nomination according to our friend Domenico Montanaro and his hashtag math on June 5th uh, Sunday that's the same day as a caucus in Puerto Rico Samara what does that mean It means that if she clinches after Puerto Rico and before California, it doesn't matter if Bernie Sanders wins California because she will have gotten the number of delegates she needs. Now, at that point, Bernie Sanders will say, well, she only got there because she has the support of superdelegates. So he will be left with his argument that the superdelegates should override the will of the people and leave Hillary Clinton and flock to him. But California would be a big spiritual victory for Bernie Sanders. It's already neck and neck. If he wins it by a hair, he finishes the primaries in a much better spot yes, than anyone no ever doubt. thought he'd be in. No and, doubt. And that's why I think you see Hillary Clinton investing money in ads in California. Very expensive state. This is not something the Clinton campaign wanted to do, but they're now pushing because exactly like you said, Sam, it's embarrassing for them to lose the primary season in the largest state in the country with a loss to Bernie Sanders. And it's only a two-point race, according to the latest statewide poll. All right, y'all, one more quick break. We'll be right back with Listener Mail and Can't Let It Go. Support for NPR Politics and the following message comes from Starry Station, the touchscreen router for fast Wi-Fi. Starry Station was designed to give you a better way to game, stream, and surf throughout your home. You can see your entire network at a glance, get suggestions on how to fix problems, and finally know if you're getting the internet speed you pay for. It even has parental controls that let you block usage on specific devices during certain hours of the day. Learn more about Starry Station at starry.com politics. All right, let's hit the mailbag. Leanne wrote to ask, quote, What would it take for either party to scrap the delegate system, superdelegates, caucuses, and all, and just use the popular vote directly? Massive protest, ballot measures, the rapture. (laughs) I don't know. I might take the rapture. It would take a lot because uh, every state makes its own electoral decisions. That being said, I think you are going to see this summer a big push on both the Democratic and Republican side to change the way primaries operate. Bernie Sanders has said that he does not like closed primaries. He wants everybody to be able to vote, independents to be able to vote in Democratic primaries. And it looks like he's going to make a push to change that system. On the Republican side, a lot of people who are allies of Ted Cruz want just the opposite 
because they blame open primaries for allowing Donald Trump to, to win primaries with independent votes. So I think this is going to be a push, change the primary voting system at both conventions. But again, it'd be really, really tough. Maybe the parties could say, OK, if you want to be awarded delegates next time around, you need to change your system by then. But this is expensive. States don't want to mess with their primary system. It costs a lot of money. And it can take years to get voters used to new systems. How much control would the National Party at a convention have over making every state party change their individual contests? They could basically threaten them. Like uh, the example that I just said was that they could say, if you want to have a full amount of delegates uh, that that your Uh, state can award, you need to have this system by this date. Gotcha. But remember, the DNC is made up from activists states. in all 50 states. Right. And if we we see we hear this fight a lot every four years, particularly from states like Iowa and New Hampshire, when people want to mess with the calendar or change the Iowa caucus, that the fight the states throw down over these fights. So the idea that individual states would be willing to completely change their process and all do it the same way is politically inconceivable, even if it is technically possible. You see about 100 bills a year to change states' primary systems 100. across the country. About 100. I looked it up recently. Okay. And um, the only state legislature in like the last decade that has changed, that has voted to change its system is Idaho, and they went from open to closed primary. Okay. All right, we got a great email from Abby in Pittsburgh. I uh, have to note that Abby was actually four years old in the year 2000. So know that as I read her question. She says, Dear NPR Politics crew, I was listening to the quick take from last week and I heard the term butterfly ballot. What is a butterfly ballot? And can you discuss the problems with Florida in the election of 2000? Oh, it's not as cute as you think it's going to be. That requires like three quick takes. Dear Abby, (laughs) (laughs) the butterfly ballot sounds beautiful, but actually they didn't fly around like butterflies. They were just in the shape of a butterfly. And when the Florida election of 2000 was contested between George W. Bush and Al Gore, some of the ballots, including some butterflies, had to be recounted. And that's why we heard a lot about butterfly ballots. Tune in next time when we discuss (laughs) hanging chads. (laughs) Counting butterflies sounds like a children's book. The main problem with this butterfly ballot, which was in a big Florida county, was that a lot of people who wanted to vote for Al Gore, the way that the ballot was set up, actually voted for Pat Buchanan, who does not agree with Al Gore on many issues at all. And that became an issue because George Bush carried the state by less than 600 votes. If Abby wants to read up on the crazy election from 2000, what book would be good for her? Anything come to mind? There's a good Kevin Spacey HBO movie called Recount. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. pretty good. Check that out, Abby. Uh, OK. Also, shout out to Matt DeRosa. In his middle school social studies class in Portland, Oregon. Hi, Matt. Hi, class. Matt was wondering if we could give his students some advice about following this election and making sense of it all if you are in middle school or around that age. So first point is there is no sense in this election that I can find. Um, I would say, because I think middle schoolers are very well versed in Facebook and social media and Snapchat, and that's how they get a lot of their information. If they really wanted to follow the election, if I could give them one piece of advice, it would be still read a newspaper every day. Yeah. My only piece of advice would be go to one of those websites that are political aggregators, and they give you a link to everything about politics for that day. Real Clear Politics is a pretty good example of that. Go to one of those one-stop shopping places that will send you to all the political stories. And mine would be kind of going back to the last question. I think 
this stuff is confusing. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But looking back at what happened in previous elections maybe makes it make a little bit more sense to just looking up online what happened in 2000, what happened in 1996, Googling previous elections just to see where this fits in the bigger trends of what's happening. I would say as you discuss this election, fight the urge to yell. It seems like all the grown-ups around right now are yelling about this election over and over and over again. So try to keep it cool. And stay in school. (laughs) All right, that is the mail, which means it's time for Can't Let It Go. When we all share one thing we just can't stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise, Susan Davis should go in first. Okay, so my Can't Let It Go this week involves Donald Trump and his penchant for nicknaming his political opponents. And we've talked a lot about this on the podcast. Mm -hmm. We talked a lot about uh, in the GOP primaries, it was Low Energy Jeb, Lion Ted, Lil Marco. I love Lil Marco. (laughs) Lil Marco. Um, You know, and and, and I don't know if he has one for Bernie, but for Hillary's Was it Crazy Crazy Bernie? Crazy Bernie, Crooked Hillary. And so someone he's been battling with this week and increasingly lately is Elizabeth Warren, the Democratic senator from Massachusetts. And his nickname for her is Goofy. Elizabeth Warren. I call her Goofy. She is. No, no, Goofy. She gets less done than anybody in the United States Senate. She gets nothing. So why I can't let it go is I think Trump has been very skilled at at defining his opponents or calling them the thing that you think they're insecure about. Right. Like that's kind of one of his skills. Goofy to me is just a swing and a miss. Well, also, I'm not particularly sure that I would dislike someone who is goofy. Right. Like Sometimes my, goofy folks yeah, are cool. Yeah, like, oh, meet, you got to meet this guy. He's goofy. Like, he's really <laughs> funny. Like, one, there's a little bit of a positive. And if you've ever interacted with Elizabeth Warren or watched her give a speech or know anything about her, like, goofy is probably one of the last hmm. ways she would ever be described. If anything, uh, our colleague Elsa Chang had a great story on Elizabeth Warren this week. And if anything, you know, her colleagues will say sometimes she's too serious or she's uh. not. You know, and so it just doesn't work for me. It's just not. It's goofy. I think Trump has to go back to the drawing board on this Pocahontas one. Pocahontas is his second choice. Pocahontas right? is Explain his second that. choice. Explain that. There's a backstory here on that she one. She used to. The reason he calls her Pocahontas is during her Senate campaign, it was discovered that she had once checked a box on a form describing what your ancestry was, that she was Native American or part Native American, which got a lot of derision because she doesn't look like she's Not American to be Indian. fair, you can be she like 132 seconds. Yes, she beer, has Native right? American ancestors. Distant, he calls her, distant, distant. Distant. So she, he calls her Pocahontas. <laughs> that is so not PC. Uh, Samara, what can you not let go this week? The sure honey vote. The way what? The sure honey vote. There are a lot of pollsters (laughs) who are saying it's very hard to accurately poll because within marriages, you've got women who can't stand Donald Trump and their husbands are saying, sure, honey, I'll vote for Hillary when really they're going to vote for Donald Trump. And you've got wives whose husbands are voting for Trump and are saying, sure, honey, I'll vote for Trump. But really, they're going to vote for Hillary. You know, I think there's something to that because I have older brothers and except for one, uh, they're all married. And I would say with the exception of one, I think the sure honey a vote applies to a lot of them. Now, granted, a lot of people nowadays under the age of 35 or 40 are single more than ever before. So, but they also vote less than But older married folks. women yeah. are one of the most important swing groups in this election. They are. They and the are. gender gap has been like one of astronomical. the astronomical in this election that men are for Trump and women are for Hillary. So you'd think it would have to be playing out in marriages, right? Yeah. Absolutely. The sure honey vote. I like, the sh- the I like that. that. The sure honey vote. <laughs> yeah. Scott? Well, as we talked about this week, this was kind of a toxic week in politics. So I'm going yeah. to take my can't let it go outside of politics and talk about the cresting wave of think pieces on the internet about 
Ghostbusters. And the movie... Oh, yeah. It's become like a thing. I've read like a think piece and a counter think piece and another think piece. And and what's going on is they're remaking Ghostbusters. It's with come, all women. With all women. And that is the problem for a lot of people on the internet. The trailer for, for this new Ghostbusters was movie... Was not good from what I hear. First, it was a bad trailer, but it has also gotten like the lowest rating in YouTube trailer history, which I didn't know was a thing until a couple weeks ago. Okay. It's a thing. All right. But there is just like this whole swarm of people who are personally offended that how could you remake Ghostbusters. This is part of my childhood. How could you do this and remake it in a different way? Which when you think about it, we are in a moment right now where like every single thing that happened in the 90s is being remade. There's a yeah. Ninja Turtles movie coming out next week. There's a Power Rangers movie. There's like Wait, nine... there's a Power Ranger oh, coming yeah. out next year, yeah. Taking that day off of work. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is like like everything who somebody in their early 30s now and and has some sort of disposable income liked as a kid is now a movie. So so the fact that like people are focusing their hatred and rage on this thing that just happens to be being remade with four women in the lead instead of four men seems kind of a little interesting and I don't well, know then, lots, like, lots of chatter on the I've air. seen some headlines basically yeah. saying in response to the think pieces about how bad it is it's like even if this new thing comes out and it's bad it doesn't ruin your childhood. Right. You can still like the old movie, and the old movie can exist in its own space and be fine. Or you could just not go see it. There you go. In the same regard, I think that like Mariah Carey's first three albums were like the pinnacle of pop vocal perfection. She can't sing anymore. Yeah. She can't. It's over. It's done. But that but doesn't mean that you does... can't still exactly. love old Mariah. Vision of Love is a classic. I'm going to always love that song, regardless of how badly she screwed up at the last Rockefeller Christmas tree lighting. <laughs> anyway, the internet. Sam, what you got? I have a thing that actually uh, Brent, our fearless producer, showed me a bit earlier. There is a Bernie Sanders superdelegate song, which Bernie oh, tweeted out to his supporters. Was it today or yesterday? I really can't say too much about it besides play that tape. Oh my. But I gotta say, those guitars are on it. This is a pretty good studio band. I can't handle this. You guys see me dancing right now? This is worse than the Raffy Bernie Sanders song. No, it's not. No, it's not. That was bad. (laughs) It's giving me like a little poor man's steely dance. I think the super delegates would rather hear that than the threats on their voicemail. They'll take the song. Yes. So at your leisure, listeners, go listen to that song on repeat. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Keep jamming, y'all. That's a wrap. As always, you can find more of our political coverage at nprpolitics.org and on your local public radio station. Scott is still laughing. I'm still laughing at the super delegate song. That, the, the band was all right. Okay, please do us a favor and rate the show on iTunes if you like it and find us on Twitter if you want to talk. Also, email us your questions at nprpolitics at npr.org. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover the campaign. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. <laughs> 